you happen to hear about that saint who trains animals? He taught his dog to heal. What do you think St. Patrick said when he drove all the snakes out of Ireland? Everyone got your seat belts on back there? Last but not least, what do you think St. Peter said when St. Lawrence first arrived at the pearly gates? Well done. Jay Martin here, marketing and media manager at Sinanthia Padua and second tallest person on staff. And if you didn't get that last joke, that's okay. You're probably like the majority of people who don't know a lot about the Catholic saints. However, with Father's Day right around the corner, I feel obligated to open with some good Catholic dad jokes. For reference, St. Lawrence was martyred by being burnt alive, and he famously told his tormentors as they were burning him, Turn me over, I'm done on this side. An absolute flex in the face of imminent death. So why do I bring up the topic of Catholic saints? Because this weekend in the bulletin, you will find the biographies of four new saints whose relics are now placed in the Our Lady of the Angels Chapel. And with the goal of going beyond the bulletin, I would love to tell you today about one of them in particular, St. Gemma Galgani. So first a quick refresher on Catholic saints and what a relic is. I apologize in advance for this pronunciation, but the word relic comes from the Latin word relinquo, which means I leave or I abandon. A relic is typically a piece of the body of a saint, normally a fragment or small piece of their bone, but it can also be an item that was owned or used by a saint, some of their clothing, even facial hair. If you didn't know, there are multiple different classes of sacred relics. The first class is a piece of their actual body. A second class would be some of their clothing or something used by the saint, and a third class relic is an object which has touched a first class. Relic. So if you were to attend one of our relic venerations in Our Lady of the Angels Chapel and you had a rosary and you went up and touched it to a first class relic, your rosary would now be a third class relic. Now I've heard from a few different people and even occasionally had the question myself of why do we do this? Isn't it kind of weird to have pieces of bone and hair and flesh of these dead saints and keep them all in a big glass case and pray to them? Are we praying to them or are we asking them to pray to Jesus, it can be a little confusing at first. But the best way that I like to explain it is that it can be hard to imitate Jesus. It can be tough to look up at a crucifix and see our, our crucified Lord and think, yeah, I can do that. That's tough, no matter kind of really even what stage in your faith you're at. But what about a normal man or woman who lived a life of faith so great that even though they were just totally ordinary, 100% man, no divinity whatsoever, they lived their life or seize an opportunity in a way that was profoundly deeper than the world had ever seen or expected. Now, if you didn't know, there are more than 40 saint relics in the Our Lady Angels Chapel, including the four new ones we just announced this week and that you can read about in the bulletin this weekend. There are 32 in our glass reliquary. There are four in the priest sacristy that you can't see unless you're a priest. And there are also five permanently located in the altar of the chapel. And what's awesome is that within those communion of saints, there's a saint or a story that had a struggle or a situation that everyone can relate to. So many of them did not live necessarily a masterful, grandiose, awe-inspiring life. Rather, it was just one turning point, one opportunity that they said, yes, I will follow you, God. Yes, I will love you, God. Yes, I will sacrifice for you, God, in a greater way. And that decision is what ultimately led them to sainthood. Yes, some of them founded religious orders and could float and receive the stigmata, but not all of them. St. Maria Goretti was 11 years old. St. Monica didn't really do any earth-shattering acts other than having a troublemaker son named St. Augustine. 
Now, if I had a dollar for every person listening to this podcast that more than likely has a troublesome child, occasional flare-ups with their spouse, and an irritable mother or father-in-law, then good news, I'd have a lot of dollars, and that would mean you too could be a saint. So, imitating Jesus can be hard, but imitating the saints can be easier. And that can lead us to the letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, where he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So long story short, we pray to these saints in an intercessory way, where we know they're enjoying heaven because of the relationship with Christ, and we want them to put in a good word for us. The saints and their relics are just another gift in the long line of treasures that Jesus has given us here on earth. Their lives are road signs and traffic signals to how we can navigate the tough times of life, the ups and downs of faith and family, but ultimately keep the faith and end up with Jesus. To the outside observer, it may seem a bit too superstitious, and I've heard from multiple people that it can be a little hard to connect with saints and their relics because of how grim or kind of morbid saint relics seem to be. And that can be kind of an initial feeling when you read some of these stories. My five-year-old daughter loves to look through some saint flashcards that we have, and together we were learning about Saint Barbara the other day. Long story short, Saint Barbara lived a very interesting life as the beautiful daughter of a pagan who kept her guarded in a tower to protect her from harm. However, when it became time for him to marry her off, she instead professed Christianity and refused marriage. He became enraged, took her to the provincial prefect, had her tortured, and ultimately her own father beheaded her. After performing the execution, her father walked home and on the way back, was struck by lightning and died. She's the patron saint of artillerymen and miners, and her name is often invoked in thunderstorms. But there is a ton of meaning and importance to these occasionally gruesome stories and the occasionally gruesome flesh and bone that we have displayed in our chapel. Having those bone fragments, having those pieces of clothing, of JP2's cincture, of St. Catherine Drexel's habit, it makes the stories and the reality of these saints a little bit less abstract, and then makes those sacrifices and stories become so much more real and tangible right in front of us. Here at Santa Padua, we really do have an indescribable gift in the Our Lady of Angels Chapel. I think having a tangible relic in front of you gives you the, the grace and the experience of being in the presence of somebody who is so, so holy that even hundreds and hundreds of years later, we are remembering that person and how they lived their life and what they did when they walked the earth. Um, to inspire us to be better people. That was Tracy Meesh, our incredible application administrator at the parish and on the communications team with myself. When I asked her who her favorite saint was, she said, There's so many of them that did so many amazing things. I appreciate Saint Therese of Lisieux simply because she um, did small things in small ways and some Sometimes, as a mother especially, we go through life thinking that the things that we're doing are um, not necessarily meaningless, but not full of meaning. Um, and yet, if we do them uh, for the love of someone else, it's a way that we can show our, our love for that person and also being Christ to the world. If you didn't hear, Pope Francis had abdominal surgery early this week, and one of the last things he did before going to the hospital was pray before the relics of St. Therese of Lisieux. Therese of Lisieux is the patron saint of florists, foreign missions, loss of parents, priests, and the sick, particularly those with tuberculosis. So how do we get all these relics, you may ask, including the relics of St. Therese and the relics of St. Gemma? Father Carlos Martins, an incredible priest who specializes in relics and works with the Vatican, has really formed a unique relationship with our parish where he's continuously giving us more and more relics because we've prioritized their display and veneration in a very beautiful and reverent and holy way. 
Father Carlos, if you're listening, we'll keep making them look good if you keep giving them to us. So next week, we're going to have the opportunity to venerate the relic of St. Anthony of Padua on his feast day, which is next week, Tuesday, June 13th. But we are also going to have our four new friends out on display for veneration. So Monday through Friday, after daily mass, from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., there will be five relics at the front of the Our Lady Angels Chapel. You'll have a chance to kind of come up and kneel down in front of them and be face-to-face with the pieces of these saints. You can bring prayer cards or rosaries or anything that you want to touch to them so that you can have a third-class relic of this saint. So that way, anytime you pray with that item, you know this saint will be praying with you. And today, instead of trying to cram in information and tell you about all four saints at once, I just want to focus on Saint Gemma Galgani, who she was, what her impact on the Catholic Church was, and what we can learn from her. St. Gemma Galgani was born on March 12, 1878, to a large family in northern Tuscany. She was the fourth of eight children, but sadly, her mother would pass away when she was just a young girl to tuberculosis. It was a long and lingering battle with the illness, and she struggled with it greatly, running home from school straight to her mother's room to make sure she was still with them. St. Gemma received the sacrament of confirmation on May 26, 1885, and on that day, she had the first heavenly communication that would happen multiple times throughout her life. According to Gemma, a voice spoke in her heart following the confirmation mass and asked her, Will you give me your mama? Gemma replied, Yes, if you take me as well. The voice replied back, No, give me your mama without reserve. I will take you to heaven later. Gemma could hardly bring herself to respond, but still boldly answered yes before running home in tears. Her mother died just a few months later. Gemma was eight years old. Shortly after her mother's death, Gemma was sent to a school of the Sisters of St. Zita in Luca. Here she developed a greater understanding of prayer and a devotion to the passion of Christ that she began to meditate on daily. Her school life, though, would unfortunately be cut short because of an illness. She had a small injury on her foot, which she didn't think much of, but unfortunately it resulted in a severe infection that caused her to be bedridden for months. An operation was even necessary, but St. Gemma refused any anesthetic, instead fixing her eyes on a crucifix in the room and enduring the surgery silently silently, which amazed the doctors. That illness was actually followed by an even graver one, spinal tuberculosis, and Gemma was bedridden once again, and Gemma's health continued to decline. In February of 1899, the doctors pronounced Gemma's health hopeless. She received her last rites, friends and family came to visit her, and one of them left her a book titled Life of Venerable Gabriel Pacenti. She read the book several times, developing a special devotion to him, and it was actually Gabriel himself who appeared to Gemma in a vision in March of 1899 and asked her, do you wish to be healed? Gemma answered in her heart, Whatever you will, O Jesus. And Gemma was miraculously healed. With her health restored, Gemma's spiritual life flourished. She had more and more intense visions and ecstasies. On June 8, 1899, while praying again through the Passion, she received the stigmata, which is the wounds of Jesus himself appearing physically on her. She felt a certain and unique intensity in that prayer of the Passion, and she came out of the vision to find her own blood flowing from physical wounds in her hand and feet and side. She said that she could even feel the weight of the cross on her back and the sharp sting of the crown of thorns on her head. The wounds would appear every Thursday evening as Gemma would plead for mercy for the sinners of the world. As she grew up, Gemma really wanted to be a nun, but unfortunately never got to achieve that dream. She traveled to a convent in Corneto, Italy, where she met the Reverend Mother of the convent there. Unfortunately, the Reverend Mother had heard about her illness and cure and reported extraordinary graces like the stigmata. Convinced that such a mystic like Gemma would not be suitable for their contemplative community, she denied Gemma's admission to the convent. Now, this was Gemma's turning point. 
What did she do? She didn't storm out. She didn't give up faith. She didn't try to pull any strings to get into the convent. Instead, she began to live the life of a nun as much as she could outside of the cloister. She'd already made the vow of chastity previously during some of her illnesses, and now she decided to add vows of poverty and obedience to her life. The order that she tried to join were the Passionists, so she wore the sign of the Passion on her heart underneath her clothes, and she recited the Divine Office every day, living the life and spirituality as the Passionist nuns did. Gemma herself would say that despite having the wounds of the stigmata appearing weekly, Gemma found this opportunity to be the greatest sacrifice and suffering of her life, the sacrifice of her vocation. One morning after receiving the Holy Communion, she said that she heard Jesus speak to her, but do you know, my child, that there is a life still happier than that of the convent? And she let those words lead her for the remainder of her life. On the Feast of Pentecost in 1902, Gemma was struck with another severe illness, which would be her last. She prayed unceasingly during her sickness, offering up all sufferings as terrible pains rocked her body. Nearly two months later, on Holy Saturday, she passed away at the age of only 25. So joyous and peaceful did she appear than when she died that those present found it difficult to believe that she was actually dead. She was beatified by Pope Pius XI on May 14, 1933, and canonized by Pope Pius XII on Ascension Thursday, May 2, 1940. Now there's one final story that I'd love to tell you about St. Gemma that I just can't get over. Because despite dying before ever becoming officially a Passionist nun, she still contributed so much to the order in such a unique way. In one of the very first letters she sent to her spiritual director, a passionist priest, she wrote in extreme detail about the establishment of a future passionist convent in Lucca, where she lived, right after her denial from the other convent. Now, at the time, there wasn't even the thought of such a project. There were no nuns in the area. There was no convent bill. It wasn't even an idea yet. But Gemma repeatedly prayed for the coming of these nuns. She even searched the town occasionally for a suitable location, rallied up some people to pray about it with her. She was all about it. Now, minimal traction was made during during her life, yet she remained super hopeful, and she told those closer to remain hopeful as well, and that the foundation of this convent would occur after her passing in the year of the beatification of St. Gabriel. Two years after St. Gemma died, a group of Passionist sisters arrived in Lucca and established a new convent in 1908. St. Gabriel was beatified just two months earlier. Today, the majority of St. Gemma's relics are housed at that Passionist Monastery in Lucca, and the relic that we have of St. Gemma at Santa Padua is from those relics. I think if there's any spiritual reflection and takeaway from St. Gemma's life, it's about praying for the sacrifice and sins and suffering of others. Oftentimes, we can be so focused on our faith life being just the avoidance of sin ourselves, that it might be a big leap looking forward to a life that involves praying for sins of a complete stranger. Here I am, barely able to live my life of faith avoiding sin, and I'm now I'm supposed to pray for another person's sins and offer reparation for those? And the answer is yes, yes we are. And praying for others is a way of loving them. When we pray to our Father, we say every time, Now, we may not see all of those trespasses, and those can be the things we pray for. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5.44. It's not an easy disposition to have, but it can be one that really leads to a more merciful and charitable heart. And that's what St. Gemma did. As her own blood spilled from the wounds of the stigmata, she wasn't thinking about herself and how holy she was. She was praying for the sins and sufferings of others, for mercy for those sinners. Can we do that? 
Can we pray for the sins of other people and tell God that we're sorry for them, even though we don't know those people, but yet we still desire their holiness and sanctity? I think that's a big way to pray that maybe could help you step out of your comfort zone, especially if you're maybe stuck in just a rhythm of recited or canned prayer. Pray any bigger, bolder, maybe even scarier way this week. I've been fortunate to really have a front row seat to this whole relic project from its very beginning. I've written biographies about all the saints in the chapel. Michael Gormley and I did an incredible video series that I'm still really proud of about the lives of these saints. And the awesome thing is, there are more saints to come. Blessed Carlo Acutis is a great example. A young, passionate Catholic who played PlayStation and liked Spider-Man and wore Adidas. And there are going to be future saints. I can't wait for there to be saints for Excel spreadsheets and the patron saint of live streaming, vlogging, you name it. Saint Claire of Assisi is an incredible saint who was once so ill she couldn't make it to Mass. But yet miraculously, she could see and hear the Mass on the wall of her bedroom as if she was there. Pope Pius XII declared her the patron saint of television in 1958. Who will be the patron saint of live streaming? Who will be the patron saint of Twitter if one could ever come forth from that hellhole of a social site. These are things I'm excited to see, especially with this Eucharistic revival. There is a future generation of saints that are rising up, and how cool would it be for you and I to be some of them? Thanks for listening to a little bit about St. Gemma Golgani and the awesome communion of saints. There are three more saints to unpack, and next week we're going to be talking about St. John Newman. Side note related to Blessed Carlo Acutis, I am excited to tell you that we will be having a special exhibit of his at our parish in October. It's a traveling exhibit that shows the documentations of the Eucharistic miracles that he built into a website. That website is one of the things he's most well known for, and we're going to have that exhibit here at St. Anthony in October. We haven't really announced that anywhere yet, but yeah, I get a lot of joy out of announcing like breaking news here in the podcast. So I think I'm going to keep doing it. So again, thanks to John and all the listeners and everyone out there. Hope to see you at the Eucharistic Procession this weekend, Feast of Corpus Christi, Eucharistic Revival. Man, we got a lot going on. But pray big this week. Pray bold this week. Love your neighbor. God bless. St. Anthony of Padua, pray for us. St. Jim Golgani, pray for us. <laughs>